0: All right, brothers and sisters, today we're going to read just a small section of chapter 4 of Micah. Um, We're going to look at verses 6, 7, and 8. These three verses give us this glorious and hopeful picture of the assembly of the remnant. And uh, it continues the theme of reversal that was begun in chapter... Four, verse 1, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But please, turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Micah 4, 6 through 8. The Lord, speaking through his prophet, says thus. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted, and the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship For the daughter of Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage and for this picture. And for the hope and the promise before us. Lord, grant that we would be attentive to what you are saying, and grant that we would walk faithfully in the midst of our present day, our day of affliction, and grant, oh God, that in this time you would help us to set aside our thoughts, dreams, aspirations, anxieties, and that we would focus instead on our Lord who speaks to us in these pages. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, we... Love a good underdog victory story. We love stories of the little guy coming out on top. Uh, it's not what the point of David and Goliath is about, but that's how it's used in our culture. We love the little guy being victorious. You know, we love reading our our nation's history in this ragtag group of militiamen took on and defeated the preeminent military in the world. Uh, Wow. You know, we love movies that celebrate that. You know, I'm a child of the 80s, and, you know, so we had the Bad News Bears. For those of you from the 90s, perhaps uh, uh, The Mighty Ducks. Okay? We love a story in which the outcasts become the victors. And brothers and sisters, the good news is that this is exactly what the Lord does. The Lord loves a reversal. He loves upending the estimation and expectations of the world. Carrying back to chapter 3, verse 12, the picture was bleak. The last word in chapter 3 is that this city is going to be plowed like a field, right? That is a picture of utter desolation and all geographical, topographical features wiped away. It is a very bleak state of affairs. And then he begins the very next verse, chapter 4, verse 1, by commencing a series of Of reversal announcements. In the last days, he says in verses 1 through 5. This this place that I just said was going to be plowed like a field. This mountain that's going to be no more. Is going to come to pass that it's the highest of the mountains. So there's reversal number one. And the people that were going to be carried away. The people that were going to be dispersed among the nations. The people that were going to lose all semblances of national, cultural pride and heritage. The people now we see. The Lord makes a people out of the very ones that the people themselves would have thought were the absolute rejects of society. A strong nation out of losers. I don't want to get too personal, but I bet some of you are still scarred from from grade school when it was time to pick sides and you maybe weren't among the first picked. I hope you're not scarred. I, I hope that didn't scar you. I hope it made you stronger to not be picked. But something like that sticks with you. If you are consistently not picked, or consistently it's down to you and some other person, and, and they're on crutches, and they're arguing about who has to take you, you know, it, it, it gets old. And so now on a societal level, if, if you're part of the rejects, and you're, you're outcast, you're not one of the haves, and every day is a drudgery And everyone looks past you, looks by you, looks around you. You feel pretty down. Take heart, because our Lord knows exactly what that's like. The stone that was rejected by the builders has become what? The cornerstone. He was esteemed not even worthy of being a part of the building. And he has become the cornerstone on which the whole edifice edifice depends. Now this passage right here is going to develop some concepts that I first need to step into. Back a moment. Uh, if you see in verse six, it says, I will, as, I will gather those who have been driven away, I will assemble. Uh, y- you see the picture being presented of, of someone going out, finding, rounding up. You may be thinking that sounds kind of like shepherding imagery. And so I, I want to underscore a few things because it gets, it gets to a point, I promise. Uh, here, throughout Scripture, the shepherding motif is a common language play, word play for kingship, for rule. Think of this in uh, Psalm 23. Psalm 23, the Lord is my... Shepherd I shall not want. He leads me. His rod and his staff, they... Okay, we know it. Very next psalm, the king of glory. Kingship, shepherdship are synonymous concepts. And so the Lord throughout the Old Testament promises this regathering of the elect, this regathering of the remnant... In terms of a flock of sheep. You have this passage here. It's more cryptic. But you have specifically and very famously Isaiah chapter 40. Verses 10 through 11. And I would say those two verses have powerfully impacted our notion of Jesus and his ministry. What does it say in Isaiah 40, 10 through 11? Behold, the Lord God comes with might. You've probably already pictured the myriad images of Jesus that have been produced depicting him holding a baby sheep, a lamb. Throughout the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 34, the Lord indicts and condemns the shepherds of Israel and then says, I myself will come shepherd my sheep. And one of my favorite regathering passages in the Old Testament is from Zechariah chapter uh, 10 verse 8 in which he says, I will whistle for them and gather them in. That's awesome. Have you ever seen that? You know, they whistle and they just come. I've seen cattle ranchers do that. They show up and, and they, whistle, they make a noise and the cattle come running because they know they're about to get something. I love it. And It's not just animals. Jesus is self-consciously fulfilling that role of gathering in the sheep. In John 10, you have it abundantly crystal clear. I am the good shepherd. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name, and they listen to him. Jesus, at the end of chapter 10, in, in, uh, in uh, verse 16, not the end to end, but in verse 16, he says, I have sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will... Listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. So we see that the elect remnant that is to be gathered is not just of a fold, ethnically belonging genetically back to Abraham, but rather the fold consists of multiple, and there's going to be one flock. Of all those known by the Father, loved by the Son, and we will listen. And we will be led by one shepherd. Now, we think of Jesus as being shepherd. You know, he's our guide. but, But it's really, really imperative that when you're thinking of Jesus as our shepherd, as the good shepherd... That you remember the the equals sign in there. That that shepherd in Scripture equals king. And one of the things that Christians sometimes struggle with is the fact that Jesus is your king. We love talking about. The bride of Christ. And, and it's, it's, it's wrong and it's dangerous and it's kind of gross theology to think that you personally do not relate to Jesus as his wife. The church collectively, the metaphor is that of a bride of Christ. But Jesus is not the consummate polygamist and heaven is not a harem. Okay? Okay? Each person is not the bride of Jesus. The body of Christ collectively is. How do you individually relate to Jesus? Well, one, he is your elder brother. But he is your king. That means end of the day, bottom of bottom line, Jesus is The boss of you and me. He has the right to tell us what to and not to do. Okay? So, this discussion I hear pop up every now and then can Jesus be your Savior and not your Lord? It's absurd. The sheep hear the voice of the shepherd, the shepherd is the king. Want proof of this? Matthew 28, 18. What does Jesus say? The, The whole Great Commission is predicated on a fact. All authority in heaven and on earth will be given to me in the millennium. No, has been given to me. We learn in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, because Jesus was obedient, even unto death on the cross, it says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. What's under the earth? Well, we're going to talk about this come next Easter. What was Jesus doing on Saturday? Saturday. He was proclaiming his victory even in the realm of the dead. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, everywhere, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that he is a king. We are, it is celebrated in Colossians 1:13 that God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus is a king. He has a kingdom. In other words, he's a shepherd with a pen And we are the sheep. Now as he's a king, what does Jesus do? Well, our our shorter catechism is helpful. In question 26 of the shorter catechism, it asks us, how does Christ execute the office of a king? And the answer is, he executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself. Subduing us to himself, think about it a minute, subdue. What does that word mean, to subdue something? I mean, we don't like it, but what does it mean? To overpower and wrangle something in to establish dominance. That's what it means to subdue. We are converted out of our dead state, but then through life, he disciplines those he loves. And we're going to get back to that because that's especially in this passage. He disciplines those he loves to prepare them for glory. So in subduing us to himself, he is getting us weaned off of our own sinful inclinations, our own sinful attitudes, expectations, behaviors, and weaned on the values, priorities, and behaviors of the kingdom of heaven. So he subdues us to himself, but then he rules and defends us. He guides our lives, but he, he defends us. We don't see it. You may not think. How do you think the church, That there are some people who have this really myopic perspective on scripture and and they read about you know the Thessalonians being persecuted they're this little rabble of Christians huddled in the corner in, in, in Thessalonica and they think that somehow this is normative for Christians through Christians within a couple hundred years were knocking down the, the gates of, of Rome practically not militarily but we so many we had gone from hiding in rooms to the culturally dominant thing. And we shaped the western world. And it was not through military might. That the that the barbarians were subjugated. It was through Christian witness. Through Boniface. Chopping down an oak tree. Thor is something. Here how about this. Vikings chop chop down their sacred tree. If he's a something. Let him do something to me. And so. God's people are defended as the Lord works providentially, supernaturally governing all things. And in so doing, he restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. I love that at the end. All his and our enemies. Because your enemies are his And conversely, all his enemies should be yours. I love when Saul is confronted on the road to Damascus. So personally does Jesus take offenses against his people. I mean, I've I've highlighted this multiple times before and I'm not the only one. Jesus does not say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? He does not say that. He says, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Okay, so he subdues all his and our enemies. Now, this then has relevance for our passage. I told you long, long introduction, backstory, but let's get back to it. Back into this passage, okay? There's four little points I want to make. The Lord. First, first of all, first, the Lord loves to choose the low and despised. I want that to resonate with you precisely when you feel marginalized, unappreciated, devalued, of low and little significance that no one sees. And that your voice is lost in a sea of voices and you feel utterly insignificant, the Lord loves you. Not in spite of it, but in fact, he chose you to shame the wise and the haves. We are told this in 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your callings, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, but many were, not many were powerful, not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus. Who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written. That the one who boasts. Boast in the Lord. So the Lord loves a reversal. And he's going to take all those who were deemed unworthy. And now. And that's the pool of people I'm going to work with to build my kingdom. So your cultural insignificance is not a mark against you. Hold your head high, Christian. You are part of a living temple that is being built. And we learn in the book of Daniel that the kingdom of God comes and it strikes That great, hideous statue, which is the kingdoms of man. And it crumbles it to dust. And that kingdom of God then just grows and grows like a great mountain until it fills the earth. Brothers and sisters, rejoice. Your perceived smallness is to your glory. Second, speaking of glory... Affliction is preparation for glory. In verse 6 here, we see that the Lord himself is the afflictor. But the people he's talking about having afflicted are not the people destined for wrath. The people destined for judgment. The people who he speaks of as having afflicted are the very ones he deems to save. That sounds weird until you find that it's the absolutely consistent theme of the New Testament. That affliction is given to us by God to prepare us to be in the presence of God. That our sinful desires and appetites are weaned away. That we then come into God's presence boasting only of his grace. Is that not what Paul is told in 2 Corinthians 12? Paul is given a thorn in the flesh. Paul calls it a messenger of Satan. But God says, my grace is sufficient for you. For it is perfected in weakness. So the evildoers out there do what they're going to do. And they're thinking they're going to make your day miserable. And they may succeed only in the short game because all the afflictions you face are preparing you for glory. Stop thinking that every time you go through a difficult thing or something bad happens to you, that God is angry at you. God wants your holiness. He wants you to be happy In him. So, this, brothers and sisters, affliction is the sandpaper of life that is smoothing us out. Third, I want us to see that we in the church, if you are in Christ, you are a people. We tend to bank a lot on our ethnic. Cultural heritage, I'm German, I'm Italian, I'm English, I'm Scottish, I'm whatever. Are you Christian? That's not a people, that's a faith. Uh, According to the Bible, you're a people. Those who were cast off, I will make a strong nation. Consider that we have one Lord and we have one law. And this whole world belongs to who? Not the devil. To Jesus. The, three, the, the, the four components you need to be a, a political entity, a political state, is you need people. You need leadership. You need laws. And you need a place. And the church then, we, we use this metaphor, this image a lot, but I, I cannot think of one that is more apt. The kingdom of heaven has appeared on the earth. The kingdom of God has broken forth into this realm. The church is an outpost of the kingdom of God think of the old forts on the wagon trails out west so that was that was indian country or lawless land or whatever you called it but everywhere there was a fort you had an outpost of american civilization and there there would be trade there would be there would be a sense of normalcy people could don't think of the church as an embassy Nations set up embassies in other nations. Why? To have normal, peaceful, diplomatic ties. The kingdom of God does not come to have peaceful, diplomatic ties with the kingdoms of the world. The kingdom of God comes to take over the world. And so we in the church are an outpost of the kingdom of God. And as people interact with us and as we interact with them, they see that there's another way. We see that there's another value system. We see that there's another way to rightly order one's life. And so, through evangelism, through discipleship, through procreation, and making more Christians, we grow and we spread. And this is how you get from a few churches scattered around Asia Minor in the Middle East to, to churches all over the globe. Finally, fourth, remember, remember, remember to the glory of God and the praise of his name, The covenantal continuity of the work of Christ. Verse 8. To you it shall come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Jesus is fulfilling promises given to David. Who was the expression of promises given to Abraham. Remember, remember, remember that your story does not begin with you per se. When you are claimed by God, you are wrapped into a covenantal story that goes back, back, back. And so this story here is not just the story of some Jews in a faraway place that has some moral lessons for you, this becomes your family history by adoption. And yes, adoption is legitimate. It's so legitimate that if adoption isn't, then we are doomed because Jesus is a David's son by virtue of adoption. Adoption. So brothers and sisters, when you read scripture and you understand God's plan and purpose for you, you can turn to these pages before Matthew and read, this is your legacy. And you're a part of something that God has been doing. So your father Abraham, when God met him and said, if you can count the stars, if you can count the sand on the seashore, then so can you count your future descendants. You're one of those. So brothers and sisters, take heart. You're a part of something big. You're part of something great. We are a people. Your sufferings have meaning because they're preparing you for glory, and even your perceived insignificance is to the glory of God. That, brothers and sisters, is awesome. We are an assembly of outcasts. Amen and hallelujah. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this day and for this passage which you have permitted us to read and examine. Lord, grant that we would walk faithfully as people of Christ, as your children. Grant that we would be faithful representatives of his kingdom, salt and light, testifying to the supremacy and the excellency of your kingdom opposed to the kingdoms of man. Grant, O God, that we would trust, obey, and that we in everything would cling to Jesus with all of our might. It's in his name and for his sake we pray this. Amen.